Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. The election of Donald Trump in 2016, like most of his campaign, came as a shock to many Americans. In her new book, Troll Nation, senior political writer for Salon, Amanda Marcotte, argues that the election of Donald Trump was the inevitable result of what she sees as American conservatism's degradation into an ideology of blind resentment. It's a really interesting book, and we had a really interesting conversation about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Amanda Marcotte. Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And you know, one of the things you can't judge a book by its cover, but sometimes the title. And what I like about your book is the subtlety of the title. <laughs> Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters, set on rat effing. You did, they did keep the U out of the title, effing with an asterisk. Liberals, America, and truth itself. I mean, were you... Was that your idea? Was it the publicist? The, like the, 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 the content of the book is not su- it's too subtle. We got to really throw. I mean, what? You're really throwing it out there. <laughs> it was not my um, idea, really. Um, my, my original title was a little bit um, kind of the same idea, but my original subtitle. But um, after the book was written, my editor was like, let's punch it up. And I was like, and. What was the original title? War and Peace. Or uh, the subtle erosion of American ideals. <laughs> it was a, it just was less like cursy. It was something like how the American right became a clubhouse of haters, I think. Well, I like it. I mean, I think it's 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 a fun title and it's an interesting book. And you grew up in Texas. Yes. In a pretty conservative home. Yes. Rush Limbaugh was on the airwaves in your domicile there. <laughs> yes. Have you ever heard a big fan? Have you ever heard his when he was like Stern sometimes plays his like when he was a top 40 DJ in Pittsburgh? Limbaugh was terrible. Like he was he was terrible. Like Stern's like, why is this guy who is terrible in a small market telling America how to think? He's just a really bad top 40 DJ. That actually surprises me because it is true that Limbaugh has an ability to do the patter and has a good voice, but he can't keep it like short and to the point, which I suppose is what a top 40 DJ needs. Yeah, you have to have that kind of, I guess, a sort of cadence, so to speak. So, you were was your home religious? No, no, we're definitely, and I think that gives me some insight into the kind of people that have, I think, been somewhat been left behind by the like classical traditional Republican politics. Is like there's a huge number of Americans that are conservative, but not particularly religious. And I think that uh, Donald Trump actually spoke to them. I, I say that while full well aware that like my folks were, while Trump voters, not particularly Trump enthusiasts in the primary. Yeah, yeah I mean, a lot of people voted against Trump Right. And then kind of fell in line. I mean, a lot of religious people and and conservatives with just even if they're irreligious or non-religious with sort of just decent sort of public values kind of thing, didn't want Trump as the nominee. And yet when he was the nominee, it's sort of all right, this is our guy and we just go. We we vote Team R, right? 
Yeah, I would be curious to know where that breakdown is on like hyper religious versus not really religious because Right now, the like religious white evangelical voters are possibly Trump's most enthusiastic supporters, and it's 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 just jumped up. A PRI just uh, published a poll where it's up actually. They, they're they're not waning; they're increasing. Yeah, and what that says to you is that white evangelicalism is not about um, values or you know, family or morality, but it is a, an identity politics. It's a white nationalist, a white Christian nationalist identity politics. This is kind of the hillbilly elegy kind of argument, right? That there's all these people that maybe they're not involved in religious communities and they're in, you know, they're not on the coasts. And yet Christian evangelical, it becomes kind of an, yeah, an ethnic identity. I mean, I, I don't go to church, but I'm not Jewish. I'm not a Muslim. I'm white. And I'm not a liberal. So I, I guess I'm kind of like nominally Christian now. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, this is not unusual. I mean, I think it feels a little unusual in American politics because Americans have always been a religiously diverse society, right? At, at least in the like within Christianity, like there's Methodists and Lutherans and Presbyterians and Episcopalians and all these different people, right? Then there's these non-denominational evangelical churches, you know, compared to Europe where usually like there's the national church and like the Catholic church and that's it. So it was a little easier, I think, for a lot of Europeans to see their church as part of their national identity, right? And so, in, in, you know, other white, like other nationalist politics, you know, like in fascism in the 40s, but also since then in Europe, it's very much about um, tying that kind of religious identity to their, like, I'm a German and therefore I'm a Lutheran or I'm a, you know, um, French, therefore I'm a Huguenot, whatever. I don't know enough about religion, but I do know this part. Well, you know Huguenot. I mean, I would say that's uh, in Jeopardy, you would do fine. I mean, you knew Huguenot. I mean, that's pretty big. No, most people don't know Calvinism from anything else, and you knew the French Calvinists. So, I mean, that's impressive. Yeah. And, and, and so I guess it's interesting to see that happen in the United States, but I actually kind of think it is. It, it is because people aren't particularly believers, right? Like the 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 identity Christian is about a national identity as opposed to a religious faith. But you do have these people like David French and some of the Never Trumpers who are religious that say, "Hey, no," or or the uh, I can't. And his name escapes me now. The author of Hillbilly Elegy, but people who actually say, "No, Christianity should be non-nationalist. It should be this kind of. It, it should be something that's." carries us away from tribalism as opposed to this thing that you know where it you know it, it's it's it in some sense seems to be ironically becoming the tribal thing the, the most allegedly kind of universal religion right becomes the tool of tribalism um yeah the thing i would say about david french is that in other non never trumpers ross douthat who's i think catholic um people like that is they are way overrepresented in the media compared to what they <laughs> like what the actual voters think, right? Yeah, and they don't have a sway with the base. I mean, like Ross Douthat, I mean, this guy is not, you know, he doesn't get invited to CPAC or, you know, he's not at, at, at the kind of in the movement kind of gatherings. 
Yeah, and David French, same thing. It's like you can make those arguments in, you know, the National View or the New York Times and, you know, God go with you, but no one cares. <laughs> like, they just don't. Like, it's it's not what moves the voters. Yeah, you tell a story in the beginning of your book where uh, uh, this story of uh, uh, Gamergate, right? Aaron Ganji is is his good is that and he right he had a bad breakup with his girlfriend who was a journalist and he kind of tries all this slut shaming and this became like a thing right I mean and this is part of your inspiration for the title of the book right yeah it's I, I open with that story because I think Gamergate was a real precursor to the politics that we are going to now call Trumpism right in this day and age and. And and it's exactly it's ridiculous to think of like some guy being angry that a woman dumped him leading to the election of Donald Trump. <laughs> but it actually speaks a lot to the kind of cultural resentments and angers that I think did in fact lead to Donald Trump. You know, a lot of the especially like alt-right Trumpian base are young men that or older men really. <laughs> They consider themselves like just men across yeah. the spectrum. That's just, and we're talking people with penises here, not in the, in the constitution sense. We're talking, you know, yeah, 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 like the gender men. <laughs> um, they, um, it, it, there's a lot of anger, I think, right now over feminism and women's growing equality in society, and it gets all emotionally mixed up with, you know their own sense of failures and disappointments in, in sex and dating. And it's that kind of very personal identity driven politics that I think that have been underrepresented in like media analysis of the right. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, because I think there's a failure to understand how important that is. And so, you know, white men just need to be more understood. (laughs) We need more people like you just wanting to understand. The plight of the white male. Well, I don't see it as a plight. (laughs) (laughs) I see it as, I try to understand not to sympathize, but I do think empathy and understanding is a very helpful place to be. And, you know, uh, it's, 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 I know it sounds ridiculous on its surface to say that, you know, a bunch of young men online are being told that, the reason that they get dumped or that girls don't like them is because feminism has ruined womanhood and therefore vote for Donald Trump. And it, it, it sounds ridiculous on its surface. And yet you go onto these online forums and that's exactly the steps that are being taken to sort of recruit young men into the alt-right. These white supremacist organizers actually really um, go on Reddit and other forums and really reach out to, to young men that are struggling and they give them this easy target to blame for problems that have nothing to do with that. Yeah. You know, there was a piece in the, in I think the Boston globe, like a year and a half ago or so, like that talked about like the sad fact that loneliness is killing middle-aged men or something. It was this really, but it, 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 I mean, uh, some of this, right, is just guys, right, and mostly guys, like, are lonely, just having the anxiety and struggles of late modern life, like everybody does, and yet there, there's not maybe as many outlets communally. I mean, you know, there's all these interesting statistics about whether or not you go to church or synagogue or mosque or something like that. 
um, affects things like, you know, your view of the future, if your income. And this could, it's not even religion, right? If just, you know, the, the erosion of unions, right? Like any kind of community thing that actually helps you have more social capital and things like that. Like, I wonder how much just loneliness, it, it makes people, the, the, the pump primed for this kind of angry populism. I I think you're onto something there. I really am. And, and uh, particularly with men, um, again, it's one of those things, you know, in feminist circles, we have a, a saying, uh, patriarchy hurts men too. <laughs> and I think that this is actually one of those spaces where you can really see it. Um, I think a lot of men are lonelier than women because the way that we socialize men, and especially in this country, discourages having close relationships with people that are not your, your romantic partner, right? You know, there, we, we see it as feminine and emasculating to have friends that you have deep emotional talks with. (laughs) (laughs) And, but people need that. And men don't often, they get to be middle-aged and maybe their marriage falls apart and then they don't have anybody. And I think that there is a lot of anger there. And I think that, women often do better because women are allowed to cultivate communities and relationships in this way that men are not. Maybe the answer to the angry populism is a kind of like friend version of Tinder where you have all these sensitive guys that are lonely and they connect and around you. Hey, you don't have to be angry at anyone. You can just connect. <laughs> that would be wonderful. But I think you would have to, in a sense, that's what they're doing in on reddit you, you could market as anger you could say hey be angry about your loneliness but then you have some algorithm that like projects massaging messages or something yeah i mean i think the problem isn't what's weird about the internet is it does connect people right and people are making friends but they're doing so under this like these men especially in the alt-right are doing so under this umbrella that where making friends just to like be friends with somebody <laughs> or to do something positive for the world is kind of seen as, you know, feminine and they're not going to do it. And so it doesn't matter. There's no way to get men to hang out together if they've bought into this kind of toxic, ma- toxic masculinity in a positive way. They're only going to be drawn to things that are angry and bitter because that feels affirming to our like model of what makes you a man in our society. You'd have to have these subversive meetups at Hooters. Basically, maybe you could get them there. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> so you have a great chapter in the book on it's the first political correctness. And, you know, it's interesting. You make this great point that for ever, every time someone like Milo, uh, his last name escapes him, Milo, um, Yiannopoulos, Every time someone like him gets banned, it's actually a, a better for the right. Like it, 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 for the for the hard right, this kind of angry populism, it's 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 good when the speaker gets banned because then you you kind of parade the the flag of liberal intolerance, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's that that they do this on purpose is pretty clear. And Yiannopoulos, I think, is a really good example. But like, I don't know. I, I don't know like the history and I obviously like a lot of the organizing goes on behind closed doors, but it's very clear to me now that like the strategy is for right-wing groups on campus to invite people whose entire shtick is that they are um, offensive 
they they may not even make good arguments. I I saw some li- like group recently in, invited like out and out and out white supremacists to campus. So they're they're increasing the the level of provocation and the reason they're doing it is because they want the protests and ideally they want the school to step in and and stop it from happening, right? And then they can claim that they're censored. This is you know, I, I know the F word is a uh, one people don't want to use a lot, but it's a classic fascist organizing tactic is to, they call it, you know, waving the bloody shirt, right? It's to portray yourself as a victim so that the discussion is not about your beliefs, but about your inability to share your beliefs without getting censored or violently oppressed by the left. Um, and it's, it's such an effective tactic, and I get into this in the book, that Milo Yiannopoulos actually has started to create events that look very much like they are fake so that he can claim when they don't happen or they fall apart that he's being censored. And you say his appeal too, right? Is this? It's He's so angry, but he's gay, and so... If you're an angry guy and you're like, I'm not homophobic, I like Milo. Yeah. And it goes to like the whole notion that they're just trolling, right? <laughs> like it, it there's something very trolly about like putting this kind of nasty like openly misogynistic like rhetoric in the mouth of a gay man who occasionally likes to dress as women because the whole point of it is not to like make a coherent argument about traditional family values (laughs) but to to just sort of like be very provocative and and try to anger liberals and then relish relish that response when you do in fact anger liberals and say see we're being oppressed and just kind of create this sort of tribalistic cycle um the incoherence of the political ideology is somewhat irrelevant to the whole shindig you make this point, which is interesting in light of a lot of our public discourse, because everybody says we need more civility, right? We need we need to be less tribal. We need to be less siloed, less self-sorting. We need you know a broader public language. We need more more tolerance. And yeah, you say you know when when the kind of this trolling kind of right wing culture attacks liberals and makes them, it, it you know it's free speech, and then when liberals hit back they're being insensitive there's this kind of and they need to be understanding and sympathetic to you know the forgotten you know american you know the forgotten yeah i mean that's a very interesting kind of double standard that you point out yeah and and i think when you're contemplating sort of the bad faith arguments that come from the right like that what's critical to understand is they don't care they because everything is about scoring points and dunking on the left and like actual political arguments and advancing ideologies has somewhat fallen by the wayside in this particular, in the sort of 21st century American right-wing politics. Um, And so it doesn't really matter to them. I think that they screech political correctness. The second you criticize a bigoted idea but then feel 100% free to advance their own kind of political correctness, for instance, you know, trying to get people fired for protesting police violence. Um, 
because they just don't care. Like it doesn't really matter. The whole point is just scoring points on the opposition and how you do it. Um, whether there's some sort of standard rules or like fair, like rules of engagement, they they reject that idea. I think at this point in time. And, and one of the arguments you make in the book is that it, it, it's sort of it's a critique of the false equivalence kind of argument. And you're saying it's not that liberals don't want to win. Of course, everybody in politics wants to win. It's that, you know, there's still an ideology. There's still some principles that you want to win for. And what you're arguing is that with conservatives right now, because they're in a more embattled kind of posture, that it just, it doesn't matter. They just want to win. There's not really a coherent ideology. It's just about hashtag winning. It's a, it's a lot of Charlie. It's winner, winner, sheen dinner. And if, and if, you know, it's a lot. It's Charlie Sheenism. Yeah. And so the question I really and, you know, the reason that I think I wrote a whole book about this is that to me, the like larger question is why? Why is why is it so imbalanced in this way? And the only answer I can really come to is that in a sense, it's because the liberal side has won the arguments. Right. And I know that that's a kind of hard for people to swallow when Republicans continue to win more elections. But I think, you know, and, and I think you, you definitely see conservatives make this point a lot, which is why I kind of explored it more. Because I don't think that, I think often they express these views even without necessarily meaning to expose what's going on. But like, you go on right-wing media sites and, and blogs, and there's often a lot of complaining that the left has one, at least the culture war arguments, you know, that racial diversity, women's equality, sexual liberation, um, gay rights, those are all normative. You flip on your television set and that's, that's the lifestyle that is being portrayed back to America as American culture, right? And I don't think that they're wrong, um, but their, their problem is that no matter how hard they tried to kind of convince people to believe in traditional family values or, you know, just speaking on these culture war issues or these kind of hyper hierarchical societies. Um, people said, no, they don't like it. Um, and, and, and more than that, I think it became very difficult for conservatives to make the argument without sounding like bigots. And so they've given up trying to make coherent arguments. And and that's just focusing on the culture war issues. I think you can actually make a similar argument for other kind of points of contention. So for instance, like deficits. <laughs> I mean, this, this is like, it was funny what Paul Ryan saying too, like, you know, I, I was very proud of the house for passing um, citizens, even though the Senate didn't pass it. Well, wait, how are you proud? That's like saying, I was very proud of our offense for getting in field goal range every drive, and we never scored, and we lost 36 to nothing, but I'm very proud. Like, wait, part of being a legislator, you have to get it through the Senate, then to the president, how a bill becomes a law. Like, what are you proud of that? Like, like, how are you proud of that? Well, Paul Ryan's like a really interesting example of the kind of bad faith of like modern right-wing politics, right? He claims that he's a deficit hawk. He passed a tax bill that drastically expands deficits. That's because Paul Ryan's actual ideological belief is in massive tax cuts for the wealthy. And 
he simply knows that he can't make that argument on his face anymore. So instead he uses distraction tactics um, and leans on Donald Trump and his trolling to sort of give, to create a circus-like atmosphere that helps get Republicans elected, but doesn't actually address the issues. It is interesting too, right? The whole make America great again. You talk about this sort of, you know, revisionist kind of mythology in the book. Like the things that were great, say in the fifties were federal government, right? Like the GI bill, like expanding highways and all this stuff. Like, you know, the misogyny and, 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 and racial equality, these are the dark sides of things. But the, I mean, Eisenhower had the top tax bracket at 89%. I mean, it, this is how we build a middle class, which doesn't happen very often in history. I mean, you know, in the Middle Ages with the plagues and stuff that you, you workers have a little leverage, but it's very seldom that there's actually a middle class. And this is, this was wealth redistribution. <laughs> It's true. It, it's one of those things where it, it's it would be curious. It's a a place where I think someone like Thomas Frank would argue that what a lot of conservatives are nostalgic for is the Eisenhower republicanism of high marginal tax rates, a robust middle class, growing social spending, etc. And maybe that's true. But I honestly see Donald Trump saying "Make America Great Again," and I think he and his supporters pretty clearly understand that to mean make America racist again. And I think that we would be remiss and it's a bummer. I get why people don't want to accept that and they want to believe that it's about something else. But we would, I don't think we're doing ourselves any favor if we favors if we ignore the fact that he made explicitly racist appeals. He tied that to the make America great again slogan. I don't think his followers are stupid. I think they got exactly what they wanted. Well, don't forget coal. <laughs> you know, I mean, coal, I mean, you know, clean coal is substrate, right? You touch coal, you, you're dirty. Like, you can't, you know, there's no clean coal. You can't go out in your Memorial Day seersucker suit around coal. It'll, you know, there's no clean coal. It's just, you can't clean it. It's, 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 just, it's a dirty kind of, yeah, I mean, but don't, I wonder if, like, if we had more functional government, like, if we had something more like, scandinavia or something where you where it's still capital you know there's capitalism there's the free market but you know the, there's more social solidarity there are more government services i wonder if people would be so ready to eat that that populist red meat i mean i, I like and vote against their own economic interests for, uh, for the anger you know it's a good question i mean there's certainly an argument to be made that what republicans they're they're like er grift right is that they get elected, they dismantle government, they create more economic insecurity, then they campaign on racism that exploits people's anger and economic security, get elected again, continue, you know, as the cycle continues, right? Um, on the flip side, you know, I do think comparisons to Western Europe are somewhat challenging because they don't have the same history of slavery, segregation. Right. They're small. They're smaller countries. They're more homogenous. Yeah. I, I mean, they're, yeah, I think there, there's more social, ca like more social trust probably in it baked into the cake. Yeah. And as they are getting more immigrants and getting more racial diversity in Western Europe, you're starting to see the rise of right wing populism, you know? Now, I mean, the, of course, the counter argument to that is they're not winning elections as much, but they are winning some. You, you have in the book, 
all these little case studies and you know of different figures and one of them is on steve Bannon. and one of the most curious things about Bannon is his love for camp of the saints right i mean this is a bizarre book uh this is uh, you know can you just say a little bit about this bizarre book and this bizarre man <laughs> it's, it's a weird book yeah i don't remember when it came out like i want to say the 70s 70s yeah the 70s yeah and it's a french book right yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, and it's it's very much making the argument that like fascist parties in Europe make right now, which is that like all these people from col- like former colonies that now have a right to immigrate to Europe, all these brown and black-skinned people are basically scum and subhuman and roaches. I mean, I, I'm not that's what this book is arguing. I obviously don't agree. Yeah, no, I mean it is this dystopian it's really dystopian. I mean, it, it, it it's a, it, it, you know, it's a racist kind of dystopian book. I mean, it, it would make a fascinating like Hulu serial drama. Yeah, a, a racist serial serial. <laughs> it's really vile. It's a, a vile book that basically tries to imply that Europe is going to be overrun by criminal, immoral rapists if they allow immigration and. Steve Bannon seems to think this is like the bee's knees. He loves this book. It is clearly his favorite book. He keeps referencing it over and over again. And it's, it's tough because it's like, it's so overt and over the top. You almost want to look away. Like, is it possible that somebody could be such a monster and, you know, was the chief advisor in the white house, at least for a little while. And is clearly still calling the president on a regular basis and talking to that. It was my favorite Trump nickname though. Sloppy Steve. I mean, I something about that. Like, I love when he makes nicknames, and that's like, that's my favorite. Sloppy Steve. Do you know what his nickname for him when he was in the White House was, though? No, no. He called him Bam Bam because of his alleged wife beating. That's disturbing. Very disturbing. Is this the kind of thing that you know because you're at Salon? I mean, you're, you're a political reference to a lot. Like, this, most people don't know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I this my life is. I'm a journalist. I spend all day having to read crap like that. Your your dream Jeopardy board could be like final category could be like nicknames Trump gives that the public doesn't know. You're like, okay, I'll bet it all. I've heard it. I know it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a sad thing. It, it it causes you to lose a lot of sleep. I'll say that. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, 
Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Andrew Stravitz, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabadian, and Jennifer Underwood. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Isn't it interesting, too, that like the cafeteria Catholicism where like you have people from from, you know, Steve Bannon, even to the sort of, you know, mainstream kind of like Jeb Bush, where you'll say, well, my church, I'm a very pious Catholic, but the church can speak on doctrine and morality, but not on things like climate change, where when the Pope's talking about climate change, he thinks it's moral. Right. Like it's not he's not just he. this is. Oh, I'm just going to do speculative policy wonking here. I'm getting a, he thinks it's a moral issue. He thinks immigration is a moral issue, just like family values and, and and sexuality and these things. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I think what is critical here is that the Catholic Church is also kind of having its own sort of culture war. Right. I think that gets a little bit erased by the fact that like both the like liberal and conservative sides tend to be very conservative about sexuality and gender issues. But the Catholic church has changed in the sense that they've embraced the developing world and some of their concerns um, because it was the only way to really expand the size and the power of the church and that has had some good effects. And, and one of the good effects is that issues like climate change and immigration have actually become sympathetic issues in leadership. Um, but I also would, I think that a lot of the people that resist that kind of wish that the church was the old, the old church. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you right. You have a chapter on the environment in the book, and you say that you know it's funny that so many Republican legislators won't even embrace what you know peace Nick hippies like the board of Exxon <laughs> will embrace, right? Like, like it's and and you say you know it's because you say it's because they're afraid of the base, right? And and that that they know that climate change, you know, like is is to some degree by human you know efforts and by you know things in the industrial age that we do to the world but they but their voters don't want to hear it yeah and i think that's twofold i think that um i think like well like let me rephrase that when i when i think about like how the average conservative voter especially like the fox news soaked rush limbaugh listening conservative voter thinks about climate change what they hear is a bunch of nanny scolding liberals want to take away my SUV. It's a culture war issue. And they can't conceive of it outside of it's just an attack. It's just like the gun control issue. Like, here's a thing I own that I feel is very identifying to me. And liberals want to take it away for reasons that they will never allow might be good reasons. Or the light bulbs. You know, with the... But it is annoying. I look. I have all those light bulbs. And I love, but it is annoying how slow that light bulbs light up. But I mean, but I think it's better that we have them. But it is annoying. Why can't we? Fit, we can put. We're launching people like on space exploration. Why can't we make those light bulbs fast? 
Well, you know what's funny about that, though? We can. It's just that you can't – the technology doesn't advance until the regulation gets in place and people have to actually deal with the problem. You know, so maybe in a few years they will be faster because there's actually a forced problem to be solved. I feel like there are certain things where just people just quit. Like my wife always says, like the microwave. What did those engineers just quit at the popcorn button? Like, come on, get so you know, I mean, make the light bulbs better. Like, you know, this is, you know, you know, win win for the team. (laughs) Well, light bulb technology, I think, is being developed in different ways. (laughs) You know, it's interesting, though, like with the environment, you you allude to this, like you have these. What's interesting now is you have somebody like Ben Sass, right, who will go on Bill Maher and he'll say, I believe in climate change. I believe it's man made. Now, Bill, the question is, do we want to just ban it like heroin? No. Okay. Well, now we're just in a reasonable debate about things. But then he will vote the same way that the person who says we don't have to do anything about climate change because Jesus is going to incinerate the world and we don't have to worry about it when he comes and is going to remake it. Like the the kind of Pat Toomey, Ben Sass kind of sophisticated sounding votes the same way. Like ever, it's just it's just a different way to conv- to sort of convince right the suburban moderate voter that oh see they're not it's not extreme I mean you know they sound very reasonable but they but the, the the voting block is the same yeah and I think that that's why I just I, and I'm glad to see I feel like I used to get a lot more pushback in sort of liberal political media journal like circles about this. I, you know, that culture war matters, that culture and identity matters. And that's one of the reasons is like Ben Sass is, has no intention of voting any differently than the Bible thumping like crazies. Right. But he also knows that like what people react to in politicians is not their voting records, but their sense that that is an identifiable, like relatable person, right. That they speak to your, your culture and identity concerns in, and so, so much of our politics has become not about what you do, but how you present yourself what you say and like what you look like and how people emotionally react to that. I don't know what the answer to this problem is, but you know, I know what it is. It's get Dwayne the Rock Johnson to become a Democrat, right? If you're a liberal, I mean that's that's it. I mean you got you got to hope he registers Democrat. Is he not a Democrat? I I I, I don't know. I mean he, you know, I don't know. I I, I feel like he's like he's got to be a Democrat, right? I, I, th- I thought I heard he was a Republican, but maybe not. Maybe in the past, I feel like there were like some like rich like black celebrities that used to be Republicans that have all switched sides you know, for obvious reasons recently. <laughs> I don't know what those obvious reasons are. What, 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 what? <laughs> uh, honking, a honking racist got elected to lead the Republican Party. <laughs> what, what do you mean? So, so you grew up in this house and you're listening to Rush Limbaugh. Do you ever, it's like people like sometimes like binge for their comfort food and just wind up like eating like, you know, like Bob Evans mashed potatoes late night. Do you ever just like, I miss Rush. I need his voice like a, like a wave machine to go to sleep. <laughs> oh God, no. Oh God, no. Let me put it this way. Like a part of my job sometimes is unfortunately listening to Rush's show. Not much. Thank the Lord. He actually puts transcripts up on his website now. So I can actually just find the section I'm looking for and only listen to that to make sure I get it right. But he like, he he's actually, I would call 
and he would probably love it. He's actually like triggering for me. <laughs> That's when he would call you snowflake. And yes, I've done my job. He's, he's triggered you. Exactly. It's, I mean, cause he's, it's upsetting. His, his pomposity, his cruelty, his sadism. It, it, it's upsetting to me. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it you know, it, it is interesting how it, you look at right wing radio and it is sort of a, there's an art form to it, like this kind of triggering into I like Mark Levin, I think, is, you know, one of the most, I, I find him entertaining for some strange reason. But he's, it, he is like he's not as talented as someone like Howard Stern, but he has like these moments of, oh, the New York slimes, the morning schmo. Oh, he's intellectual. He uses three syllable words. He'll tell you so, you know, meet the depressed. Like he has these kind of sticky things that like liberals aren't aren't, aren't as I mean. Liberals are better at it on TV, right? Like, you know, John Oliver, Colbert, Samantha B. I mean, you could like liberals are good at TV, but for some reason, radio it doesn't. Liberals are not good at that. Yeah, I don't know what to. I mean, I think that there's a different aesthetic even between the sort of TV and talk radio thing because different groups respond to different aesthetics, but like. Because liberals listen to podcasts, right? And and talk radio. I mean, service. There's a different vibe. Like it sounds different. Certainly, you're not going to find a lot of liberal like radio shows and podcasts, even if they're comedy oriented, where dumb nicknames are like the main source of the laughs, right? <laughs> yeah, because you argue like it, it, it for liberals. It's not. It, it's a byproduct, which kind of. But generally, on liberals' good days, right? That it it. it it serves a sort of bigger ideological or idealistic vision. Whereas again, for conservatives now, it's more about the punchline. Like that's how it works. Like it's, it's about the name. It's about the triggering. It's about, and that's really what's effective. Yeah. I don't think like if I was going to say a difference that is really critical is like your average, like Mark Levine, like listener, like sits there and he thinks about how fun it would be how much he he th- he he imagines a liberal watching him an imaginary liberal watching him listen to this show and how fun he enjoys their horrified reaction right whereas i don't listen to pod save america right <laughs> and think how much is how 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 joyful i would be at like how angry that would make conservatives i know about. scott bayo is infuriated by this yeah, no, it just doesn't even occur to me. Like, I, they don't. I, there's a, a camped out in your in their head sensibility to conservatives. Like, and it's something I think I, I, I've been obsessed with in that sense because I I've have had so many trolls and stalkers over the years, just as a, a, a like a public figure, and it's just weird. Are any are any of them endearing? Are there cute trolls that are like you know? <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, there's no, there's no like endearing little troll like no you, it's not especially as a woman it's really not fun having knowing that so you live 24 7 in so many men's heads you know yeah now i'm creeped out i'm officially creeped yeah you know do you go home at thanksgiving oh no i don't do holidays i i told my family that that's but it's really more about the pains of traveling to Texas from New York during the holidays. I go visit them at the off season. <laughs> when you visit, what's it like? I mean, like, okay, 
Here's Amanda, our our pinko daughter. I mean, are there are there are there like I mean, are do you, I mean, do you just like find talk about other stuff? I mean, what do you, does your work come up? Do they say? Do they they make up an occupation for the neighbors? Oh, she works at a hair salon, not salon. Well, first of all, their friends have no idea what salon is, <laughs> so it doesn't really matter. Um, second of all, if they can just say salon, they think, oh, salon, she cuts hair. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, they're proud that I'm a writer. They're proud that I am successful. I think it stresses them out a lot, what I write about. Um, if I had my druthers, I would go and we would talk about grandkids and pets and nothing else. Um, the weather, uh, <laughs> They they want to draw me into political arguments, and I, I find that not fun for me. But um, so in weird in weird ways, your life, your own biography, mirrors the book, right? Like you kind of don't want to poke the bear, and they do. They kind of they do. Yeah, it's yeah no, and exactly. There's a very disparate like. There's a a definite like difference there. <laughs> Um, I do not enjoy poking the bear because I, I, it's valueless to me. Like, what is the value of that? Like, what what is gained? They're not going to change their minds. Yeah, I mean, do, yeah. Do you know Jonathan Haidt's work? Yeah, uh, the righteous one. Yeah, I mean, because like, he kind of argues right that that everybody, you know, there are these sort of moral taste buds or whatever, and and everybody kind of agrees with fairness and compassion. Although liberals and conservatives would interpret that differently. But what conservatives also care about is things like in-group loyalty, you know, authority, and 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 sacredness, right? There's so, so I mean, I wonder how much understanding that stuff helps. I mean, you're somebody you're somebody that's sort that comes from conservative roots. I mean, how much? I mean, you you're kind of critical of, of false equivalence and. and and rightly so. But I wonder how much empathy and understanding actually does help right i mean is there is there value to that stuff for persuasion i used to think so and again all i have found is that it's very valuable in terms of derailing attempts to needle me <laughs> like with a toddler right with a, okay you're melting down here's your here's your binky here's your toy here's your <laughs> here we go. all right empathy understanding i understand your point of view okay move on let's go back to pets yeah i mean it actually kind of makes it worse because i can kind of zero in on what their weak spots and points and thoughts and and values are and try to like what am i so i you'll often find these like readers online that are like how to reframe liberal arguments into kind of conservative values and and their frames and stuff right and i've tried that and what i have found is that it does mean you effectively win the argument but then all you do is you get an angry reaction yeah no one ever wins an argument right because if you actually get to a place where you outmaneuver somebody they usually feel so much shame and inadequacy that every time the issue comes up again what they remember is the emotional response for being wrong and not the facts exactly it it the <laughs> debate and argument is just unfortunately highly overrated as a way to uh, to learn things and and develop ideas yeah i mean this is jonathan Haidt makes this point right why what actually happens too, like oftentimes on any controversial issue like you know 
Israel, Palestine, abortion, you know, uh, political, whatever it is, that people are actually not trying to persuade somebody. They're actually trying to tell the in group they're on the team. And so uh, you see this on cable news, right? It's it's not nobody ever, uh, with the exception of like PBS, which is not cable news, but like PBS roundtables are very fascinating. My wife and I were watching it like a year or two ago. And she was like, someone just apologized and said, and then somebody just said, I don't know the answer to that question. Like, like when does this ever happen? You know, but, but that just in general, right? It's just sort of their pep rallies, public discourse today. I mean, I'm not as cynical as him on that. I think that in-group discourse can sharpen people's thinking. And I do think that there's valuable debate that happens in group, right? When people have shared values and assumptions, you can actually kind of hash things out, I think, effectively. And I've had plenty of conversations in my life like that where I feel like I've persuaded somebody or I've been persuaded because I never felt like they were out to get me. And or they were trying to win. And once you move out of that model, I think conversation is possible. But I, the problem is both parties have to opt into that, right? And if conservatives or liberals have a conversation across the aisle with somebody who feels that the only point is to win, like, you've already lost. Are you a competitive person by nature? <laughs> So this is tough to be a liberal right now. <laughs> like, well, I try to know my know thyself. <laughs> so if, you, <laughs> if you deny it, it's just gonna make it worse, right? Do you have a favorite conservative thinker or writer? I mean, are there conservatives you look at and like, yeah, this person's actually. Uh, there's some some things here that I think need to be in our public discourse. No, and that's what I think I find sad and what drove me to write this book in large part is I I just feel like it's empty, you know. I and I think that there's, you know, maybe there I can I can actually imagine a world where like there's conservative arguments that I disagree with but maybe make me think or but that I just feel like it's it's sort of become rigid and and pointless. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I've had Dan Savage on the podcast, and I think he's conservative, kind of small c. I mean, he has so much about talking about sex in ways that make human flourishing work and keep families together. And, and, and there is something about that. I, I mean, I think there is this place for a sort of traditional small c conservative arguments because we are in it. So many people, you look at the, the phenomena of all these shootings, right? That just see, strikes me as alienation. I mean, like people just are so alienated. And and this is where conservatives, where, where a conservative argument about, hey, we need sort of traditional things like family institutions for more social glue and cohesiveness. But it, but you'd have to make that in a way that's not acerbic, which is part of your point of the book is like, it's hard it, it, right now, conservatives, all that's eclipsed, right, for, for just the winning. Yeah. And actually, Dan would be a, Dan's sort of worldview would be my, uh, a good example of how I would argue liberals won the argument, right? I think both liberals and conservatives obviously believe in community, family, stability. I think social cohesion is a good value that everyone agrees on. It's just liberals won the argument about what makes social cohesion function, right? And like Dan would be a good example. Like, his argument is that marriages are more stable if sexuality is honored and and instead of 
swept under the rug. And he's right. And unfortunately, like the so, so po- supposedly pro-marriage people continue to push this agenda that where sexuality is shameful, women shouldn't have reproductive rights, and all those things break against their stated values. And, and you see that in the divorce rates and single parenthood rates of red states versus blue states, right? Right. Blue states live red. I mean, they, 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 blue states tend to cultivate the family values more. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. It's edu- Yeah. Edu- but there is something, though, right? I mean, like the conservative, I mean, we liberals have won the argument in some way, but there is this alienation still. I mean, there is there's something about the way we've done life together in, in late modern culture that there there's something missing for a lot of people. And, and this would be something you would think. Right, conservatives would really want to work on, you know, constructively. You would, you would think, but that would be that would require admitting that liberals were right about a lot of things, and I don't think that they want to do that. And so, I, I actually think that alienation is often just alienation from self, and and sort of that a a, a result of incoherence of worldview. You know, wanting certain wanting certain things that aren't going to work with the sort of values you hold. Okay, just random question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much does James Comey ag- aggravate you? 1 being hangnail, 10 being aneurysm. <laughs> 5. <laughs> I, I, my wife and I watched his Colbert interview last night, and we we're just like, this guy is insufferable. He kind of, he kind of wants to be Bob Mueller. But but Bob Mueller wouldn't have wouldn't have put his thumb on all these scales, right? I mean, this is this weird like kind of I'm the ethical man, and so I was trying to show how ethical I was. And I'm pushing on the thing, and I I threw. I mean, and and his inability to say like, you know, Colbert's like, well, if you had a time machine, he's like, I'd go back and do the same thing. He's like, no, first off, you'd go back seventy years, kill baby Hitler. Then you go and you don't do the Anthony Weiner thing. That's the second thing you do, right? Uh, yeah. I guess the whole James Comey thing, he, I mean, as a person, he's obviously an aggravating person, but like, I also just, I think this really kind of gets to something I really find most, the most frustrating thing about American politics is like the way that everything's about personality, charisma, what team you're on and watching people be like, James Comey, do we like him? Do we not? I'm like, who cares? You know, I love that you. I love that you just did intentional vocal fry. You're like, who cares? <laughs> I I want to show you how annoyed I am by making an annoying voice. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I I just. I mean, I think it, it, what it's irrelevant. He's he's a pompous ass, but his. His value to our political discourse and history is that he was wrongly fired for political reasons and and what violation of rule of law that may have been, and whether or not that firing is going to be what brings Donald Trump down because he uh, clearly obstructed justice. Don't you think Donald Trump's just wishing he lost? That? I mean that election. I mean he even said to Roger Ailes, right, Lo- losing to Hillary is winning. I'll be a big bigger celebrity. I mean this is like. He had the lifestyle he liked. He could run around and, and harass women and play golf and run shady businesses. And now he's got all this public scrutiny. I don't think he has the self-awareness as a human being to understand that 
he has made himself unhappy. You're saying Donald Trump is not self-aware. Come on. Come on. <laughs> he's, he's incapable of saying, I did a thing that made me unhappy. Because that's admitting mistake and error, which he's fundamentally incapable of doing. It's hard for good people. And it's impossible for him. When you write this book, right, are you thinking, again, so much of the tone in public life right now and, and, and this sense for what we need. And, and again, right, I think there's a real, this is not, there's a real point to it. We need more civility. We need more understanding. And you're kind of writing a book that's saying, hey, LBH here, let's be honest, right? Like, there's an imbalance here. This is the problem. Were you worried about how it was received or, you know, the sort of mainstream left saying that she's one of the, you know, uh, you know, we, we, you know, we got to We got to silence these voices. We're all moving forward and trying for more peace and harmony after the age of Trump kind of thing. Yeah, no, um, I worried about that. But I've also been subject my entire career to condescending arguments um, about how I don't understand particularly my own people. <laughs> hey, you're like, first off, I was, I'm a woman, so I've been condescended to my whole life. <laughs> exactly. So uh, more of the same, I've actually been relatively pleased at how positive the reception's been because um, I've had a lot of people that I think a few years ago would have told me that I don't know what I'm talking about um, feel very differently about because, like, I feel like getting Donald Trump elected to office took a lot of wishful thinking out of a lot of people's uh, lives. <laughs> so if I'm a Republican right now, my only hope for the midterms in the future is the Democratic Party, right? Like, because, I mean, if any party could screw up something, it could be the Democrats, right? I mean, they're t like, it, it, this is, so I, I, I wonder, who do you look to right now? on the left as somebody like, gosh, if, if we had more, if we could clone this person or these people, we'd actually have a, a shot electorally. I mean, this is, these are people that are not just uh, have good ideas, but they're also good at, at, at sort of winning hearts and minds. That's tough. I, I'm inherently just intrinsically resistant to the politician savior narrative, but um, yeah, we need good politicians. My, you know, the person I think who knows how to get elected and while making good arguments is Sherrod Brown. Um, and Senator from Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. He would probably, if I could clone him, that would be awesome. <laughs> Cause he's a good guy and, and tweak his voice a little, little. but other than that, you know, <laughs> you know, and maybe a character, quick makeover. Yeah. As a politician, it's obviously uh, Kirsten Gillibrand who's been like knocking it out of the park. She, she has a temperature of like, what Democrats, Democratic voters want right now out of the Democrats. Um, but, you know, with all that said, I want to caveat that by saying that I think that liberals would be um, wise to realize that the best way to win is to organize outside of the party and, and pressure politicians. Right. There's a guy, Jim Wallace, who is the editor for Sojourners Magazine. He says, you know, what all politicians do is, you know, they lick their finger hold it up and see which way the wind is going. And so the only way you change things is to change the wind. Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of liberals get mad when you say that because they, they find that to be dis they're They don't like the dis with the perceived disingenuousness of that. I would like to 
people on the left to reframe that understanding as an advantage, not a disadvantage and say like, that means we have power and levers that we can pull. Well, Amanda, you've think you've written a fantastic book, and I think if the wind changes, maybe Troll Nation might be a, a small part of it. And thanks for writing it, and thank you for taking you know just a few minutes to talk with me about it. No, no problem. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Uh, it's a pleasure, and I'd love to have you back on as we can, you know because politics is always relevant these days. Yeah, let me know anytime. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Amanda for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, Troll Nation. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well. 